Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Right Way Podcast Program with me, your host, Sam Elliott. Uh, I know we've had a lot of firsts of late, but we're having another first for the program today. Probably first, and I'm going to say probably only of this uh, type of guest. But I mean, you know, who can predict what's going to happen in life? But anyway, the reason I say it's the first is because today this is the first time I'm speaking to a confirmed bona fide spy, albeit a former spy, uh, Rod Barton, who's dedicated his life to a very storied career working within Australian intelligence, working for a myriad of different departments with uh, as many crazy kind of acronym named names as you could possibly think of and varying different titles going right up to, yeah, be very high ranking within them and have like crazy department director names and such. So Rod Barton uh, originally came from humble beginnings within Elizabeth, which is a small town there. Uh, And obviously he dedicated his life. He kind of has mentioned in his book that he never really originally entered into or desired to enter into intelligence, but that's that's what he did. Uh, He would then go on to kind of frequent uh, or disparate going back and forth between sort of palatial sort of offices and restaurants within New York and London through to kind of uh, hellish war zones within uh, various different areas trying to pacify them or conduct intelligence within Somalia, Iraq. He was a weapons inspector searching for weapons within Iraq on and off quite a lot throughout his career. Uh, as we're going to find out. But anyway, today Rod is going to be talking to me about his uh, his memoir, which is pretty lean uh, book uh, under the 300 page mark, considering how much of a storied life he's led. So I'm going to obviously be asking about how he's, he's managed to kind of uh, finagle that amount of his life into such a kind of uh, slender format. But yeah, so this is The Life of a Spy, An Education in Truth, Lies and Power by Rod Barton, a confirmed former spy intelligence officer for Australia, working with uh, the likes of the CIA and such. So everyone, if you could please give a huge, big digital round of applause to Rod Barton talking to me today about his memoir, The Life of a Spy, An Education in Truth, Lies and Power. Rod Barton, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. And you? I'm very good. I'm very, very good. I've got a lot of questions for you because you've lived a pretty remarkable life and had a remarkable career. So I really wanted to get into the nitty gritty of that. Let's uh, start back at the beginning of you growing up in Elizabeth with the weapons research establishment nearby and uh, your undertakings as a Boy Scout. How do you think that that sort of kind of led you or started your interest in what would ultimately become your sort of vocation within intelligence? Well, um, of course, I was always interested in science. My father was a research chemist. Mm. I was always interested in science, and science was my favorite subject at school. And when I realized that just across the railway tracks (laughs) Mm. uh, was this research establishment, um, that that, uh, interested me. And, of course, I knew quite a few school kids at school who had their parents working there on secret projects, Mm. and uh, I found that fascinating. So that, that stimulated an interest in science and what science can do. Uh, but it didn't. At that stage, I wasn't thinking of a career in intelligence, of course. No. What about your your Boy Scout? Because your work with the Boy Scouts. Because ultimately, that um, and as I want to go into a little bit later, but that kind of uh, uh, 
served to help you almost have sort of save someone's life and kind of do another couple of interesting things as well. Um, so, so what about that, that undertaking? The Boy Scouts uh, was a fascinating experience and, of course, had a great impact on a young person. Mm. And uh, we, we had a scoutmaster who was into adventures mm. and would challenge us. And uh, back in those days, uh, you know, the safety things like that weren't so well considered. So uh, I describe in the book how we were sort of dumped in the uh, bush, got a friend of uh, one of the other scouts and myself, mm. and uh, we had to go on this uh, uh, investigation, mm. and, uh, and I found that fascinating. But we also learned skills, you know, cooking and lighting fires and surviving in the bush. And I have to say that was useful later on in my life. Uh, I could sort of camp down anywhere. I could sleep on hard surfaces as I often had to do in Somalia, for example. Uh, and I just learned to sort of look after myself. Uh, mm. So Boy Scouts was a good foundation for my future life. Not that I thought much about it at the time. It was just good fun. But uh, as it turned out, it was, uh, it was very substantial. It did turn out to be substantial, and I mean, like, I, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but one point I particularly enjoyed was when you kind of bonded with the president of Somaliland, President, um, I think it was E-G-A-N, Egan, or something, something of that, and it was revealed that he himself was a Boy Scout, and I think you ended that meeting by giving a Boy Scout handshake. Uh, that's right. Uh, it was <laughs> President Degal. That's it, sorry. Uh, yeah, who was uh, then the president of the self-styled Somaliland. Somaliland really was part of Somalia as far as the United Nations was concerned. Mm. Working for the UN then. But, um, but they sort of declared independence and it's the north part of uh, Somalia. And the Boy Scouts uh, Association uh, had a great impact on him as well. Mm. Uh, he'd been educated uh, in the UK and uh, he'd been in the Boy Scouts Mm. And uh, and we recognised that we were, or he mentioned it, uh, that we were both uh, as kids in the Boy Scouts, and uh, this gave us a sort of a bond between us. And um, and I was trying to uh, negotiate with him various mm. things uh, in connection with my work with the UN at the time, and uh, that sort of bond that we had from the Boy Scout days was also quite valuable mm. and uh, uh, with some sort of uh, amusement we both uh, held out our left hand which is a Boy Scout handshake and shook it at the end so we sort of still had that bond from those early days obviously still many differences uh, because uh, uh, you know we were now grown ups and mm. doing different but uh, it, there was still that it was still quite useful to me, and I think he let me uh, do things or uh, in his uh, self-styled uh, republic. Mm. I wouldn't have been uh, permitted to do if I hadn't have been for that bond that we had. I did think that I found that to be incredible. Um, just an incredible moment, kind of somewhat surreal. Uh, these two very disparate people from very uh, different sort of provenances, kind of united by this. Uh, 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 early childhood sort of pursuit that has kind of carried them through life and still gl glimmers here and there. I thought that was incredible. Yeah, well, I, 
I, I found it a bit surprising too because I thought, well, it was all in the past for both of us for a long time. But it obviously, as I said, with you know kids, it sticks throughout your whole life and, uh, in the background. But it obviously stuck with him and with me, so mm. that was good. Now, Rod, let's let's because you originally started off the Australian Patent Office and then you kind of went over to your British counterparts there. And ultimately, you ended up applying for a job, which you, I think you yourself had described was a vague-sounding job with the Department of Defense. That was the sort of first uh, uh, way getting into uh, what would become like you as a junior analyst. But you mentioned as well that you had no or little interest within joining or following some intelligence career at that point. So what do you think drew you to that role then that ultimately obviously would lead you towards a, a very kind of like long and storied career within intelligence? Well, I can only describe it, describe it as an accident. <laughs> uh, I was a scientist, as I said. I'd been working as a, um, a scientist in the, um, the patent office in Canberra, mm. uh, looking at inventions. Uh, and as interesting as that was, uh, it was a bit limited. I could see that. And then I saw an advertisement in what was then the Government Gazette, uh, where they advertised government positions. Mm. And it was very vague. It just mentioned um, a scientific position in the Department of Defense. It was a bit of a promotion for me. So I thought, well, and it sounded a bit interesting, although it, it was very vague. I asked for a duty statement, and they sent out a duty statement from the Defense Department, but I was still not much the wiser. So, uh, but fortunately, I got an interview and went along and to cut a long story short, uh, I got the job, but mm. I only knew at the interview what uh, the position was. It was in intelligence. Mm. In fact, I remember very clearly sitting down across the desk from the guy who was interviewing me, and he slid across the desk a piece of paper with a duty statement on, and it was stamped confidential in red ink. Mm. I tried to grab it off him so I could sort of sit back and read it, but he wouldn't let go of it. So I had to lean over the desk and, and try and read it uh, on the desk, and then he pulled it back. And, and he apologized. Oh, he said, we sent out the wrong duty statement. I knew that that couldn't be true, but I realized why he said that, because it was confidential, and he obviously couldn't stick it in the mail to me. So, And, and that's how I was recruited. I got the job. But uh, it was all by accident, really. But I was very pleased. And it seemed to me sort of a natural way to go, but I had never planned it. Interesting. Interesting that it was kind of this serendipitous thing and was kind of wanting to expand more of your horizons or get out of the lab. But also, one of your first points was as a junior analyst, you were tasked with monitoring the nuclear arms race between the US and the then USSR. Uh, you mentioned as well, though, that, that although that was your main task, you were mostly drawn to the Middle East, and obviously that became kind of career-defining, as it were, you spend a large portion of your time there. What was it that drew you originally to the Middle East or piqued your attention? Well, uh, that, uh, what drew me there is that uh, no one else was really looking at the Middle East in those days. Mm. It wasn't of a great deal of interest to Australian intelligence, too far away. Countries closer to Australia were of greater interest, and even then China was our greatest interest. Mm. Um so uh, no one was really looking at it, and I have to say that the direction and supervision uh, at that time uh, in intelligence was not, at least for us, uh, was not that great. Uh, my boss was interested in other things, and um, and so we all sort of, the, the group of us who were working at that level sort of sorted out amongst ourselves what areas we'd work on. and. 
everyone else had covered China and other places of closer to Australia. So I thought, well, let, let's see what I can look at. And sure enough, there was the Middle East, no one looking at it, and nuclear developments were going on. So I thought, well, that, that should be of interest to Australia. And, um, uh, and of course it was. Yeah. And, and, and as it turned out, it became more and more important as time went on. I mean, we live in we live in a one world, and uh, if it, and if these days, if an event happens in some distance, you can't just say, "Well, we're too far from that." No, mm. uh, we have allies. Uh, we, the government, feels we have obligations, and um, and of course, when the first Gulf War started in 1991, we were drawn into that by the Americans, mm. and with the Second War in uh, 2003, the Iraq War. So. You know, we just can't divorce ourselves from events that go on elsewhere in the world. No, definitely not. You mentioned earlier that uh, one of your key interests when you were when you were younger and obviously sustained you throughout your life was this interest in chemicals and, and chemistry. Uh, ultimately, there was a mention of you kind of investigating biological weapons. This was kind of when they were still sort of um, a novel concept, albeit within this sort of scope. You mentioned about trying to investigate the manufacturing of anthrax and uh, how you tried to go about doing that in labs that weren't essentially equipped for it, but were still capable of had the wherewithal to do it. Can you talk me a little bit through that, Rod, as to what was happening and how you kind of uh, investigated the the manufacturing of anthrax? Well, uh, uh, because uh, I mean, I was doing nuclear stuff, although mm. I wasn't trained in that. My my background was in microbiology, mm. and so. Uh, and then, uh, again, to cut a long story short, mm. uh, um, the Americans accused the Vietnamese of using uh, toxins, biological weapons, yep. in Southeast Asia. And that started an interest for me. Again, I, I took it on myself. It was my own initiative to start working in that area. So I was still doing nuclear stuff, but I also started looking at... Uh, what the Americans were accusing the um, Vietnamese of doing mm. and dragged me in further and further and actually I spent two years doing that. Um, so, uh, and after that event, uh, I decided that um, perhaps uh, we needed someone to look at uh, chemical warfare and biological warfare. At that stage, there was no analyst involved in those areas. So I nominated myself <laughs> I suggested a, a promotion in that area which I got um, I created the position actually I drew up the, uh, my own duty statement I remember you saying that yeah <laughs> and I got a position in that area but I have to say I knew very little about it there's one thing about being a, a microbiologist but biological warfare and chemical warfare is a very specialist area and you can't learn that at university or anywhere else mm. I really had to teach myself uh, the one thing I did have is the laboratories, defence laboratories down in Melbourne mm. uh, that provided uh, research into protection against such things. So that was my first port of call. But I still realised I had to learn a lot more about biological and chemical warfare more than just protection, mm. you know, face masks and things like that. So um, I... Uh, I thought, well, if you were going to make anthrax, where would you make it? And um, I thought, well, you know, you make it in a fermenter. Mm. And uh, I arranged to go down to the um, 
CSL, Commonwealth Serial Laboratories, and um, uh, and uh, asked them to show me around. And of course, I was a public servant, so they allowed that, and they allowed me to sort of probe around and look at you know exactly the finer details and talk to their engineers and scientists there and discuss with them. Well, if you were making uh, not a vaccine, but if you were making anthrax, how would you go about it? And mm. uh, had to think about it. But, uh, yep, so uh, that's partly where I learned uh, the trade. So just yeah, I mean, it's essential knowledge, but it was it was, it was frightening reading, at least for me, because obviously I wouldn't want to be around that, even within, you know, kind of uh, conditions within a lab. I was, I myself thought that it was, yeah, essential learning. I just, to your credit, I was surprised that you you did that, but I understand why. You also just touched on, Rod, I think it's you mentioned, or you are going to be mentioning the Yellow Rain slash Bee Poo scandal. Is that what you... Yes. Look, I want you to just talk a little bit, just a brief overview of that, because obviously that was two years' work of your life, but I mainly wanted to focus on the kind of outcome or the aftermath of that, because I think that you kind of found yourself with your findings and what you put forth as being out of odds then with the CIA. That's correct. Uh, well, I, I, as I mentioned, uh, the Americans accuse the uh, Vietnamese of using these toxins. Mm. Uh, and so... Um, I set about investigating that because uh, the Americans were trying to get us on side. They're straight, trying to get the Australian government on side to mm. support them in accusing uh, the Vietnamese. And the Americans actually were really accusing the Russians. Mm. The Russians of supplying the Vietnamese with these toxins. And the evidence came from uh, a couple of things. Uh, one, that they, a, a number of refugees had fallen ill. That was the first thing. Mm. And secondly, when they went to investigate, they found yellow spots, which they said, ah, oh, here's, um, here's the proof. Because when we analyzed yellow spots, some of them, although they didn't tell her only some at that stage, they said, yes, these yellow spots have toxins in. As mm. it turned out, only a few had toxins in. And sure enough, uh, some of them did have toxins in. Um, so it was a bit of a mystery. But when we looked at this closer and we collected our own yellow spots. When we looked at this closely, uh, we discovered that these yellow spots uh, only had tiny, tiny amounts of toxin, not enough to kill a mouse. Mm. And therefore, how come that it's affecting humans, if it is? And why aren't all the yellow spots toxic? And what else is in the yellow spots? And it turned out what else was in the yellow spots was pollen. In fact, they were 99.99% pollen and a little tiny bit of other things like a bit of toxin. And uh, with the help of uh, a Harvard professor, uh, Matthew Messelson, we decided uh, that yes, these yellow spots weren't uh, anything to do with um, biological warfare. These were actually, this was actually bee poo. And I think all beekeepers and people who live near large hives know about yellow spots on their cars and elsewhere. The bees eat pollen, and when they uh, defecate, they defecate pollen, and occasionally the pollen grains get contaminated with um, a fungus, and you get a tiny amount of toxin in it. And that's what we were detecting, and that's what the Americans were detecting. And so this is a ridiculous episode of Beepu. And I, be I became quite an expert in Beepu. I investigated it for two years. Strange to put on a, a job application, but um, <laughs> yeah, I 
was a BPU expert for a while. But uh, as you as you asked, yeah. uh, you asked about how that caused a problem because, of course, the CIA had come up with this conclusion and they weren't going to back down. And they told their Secretary of State and they told their President, and their President uh, was accusing um, uh, the Russians uh, of uh, of of supplying. Uh, dangerous uh, toxins to the Vietnamese in violation of treaties, of course. Mm. So uh, it was political more than anything else. Uh, but the CIA could not back down because uh, they would have to contradict their president by that stage. Mm. So um, uh, I then I was in a fight with the CIA um, and uh, that caused uh, me problems later down the track. So that, <laughs> You, you never want to have a fight with the CIA. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. They, um, I thought that I think at one point you mentioned that there, and there was a report that they labelled you as mischievous or something like that. Uh, yes, um, perverse and mischievous. Perverse and mischievous. Perverse, wow. Perverse and mischievous. In fact, the head investigator from the CIA wrote to the director of my intelligence organisation saying, you know, Barton is perverse and mischievous. <laughs> in coming up with this ridiculous uh, theory. But of course, we did thoroughly investigate it, and it wasn't just me. Uh, there were a, 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 really a TI, although I led the investigation, there were a team of people who agreed with me. You know, we mm. had the laboratories down in Melbourne who analyzed everything, and uh, and uh, we were convinced that uh, it was really just Bipu. And, uh, and the letter was written by the head of the CIA in trying to influence uh, uh, my organ, my intelligence organisation, either to get rid of me or to change the mind of the intelligence organisation. But of course, we didn't do that. Didn't we wouldn't do that. Mm. And um, the prime minister at the time was uh, Malcolm Fraser, and he accepted our views, which was great on him mm. uh, for accepting our views and not the Americans' views. The only the only deal that was done on America with America over this is we wouldn't um, publicly say that we believed it was Bipu. That That's was right. the deal. We knew, but we wouldn't support them on it either. And that was a compromise. And you ultimately, I mean, so so that was yeah, like you said, you don't want the the CIA, let alone the head of the CIA, going after you. But I feel like you also a little bit later. Right, and it was one of your first forays into kind of uh, speaking with a defector. You mentioned uh, Dimitri, I think it was only the name that he was known by, uh, and then USSR defector, who ultimately kind of pinpointed a location that you then shared with the CIA, and I believe that they were grateful for that information. So I feel like you somewhat redeemed yourself in their eyes. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct. Um, the, the, uh, he was a defector. Uh, he defected in Sydney. And um, because of my expertise, um, I was assigned to uh, debrief him. Mm. And we went to a safe house and uh, lots of fun. <laughs> and I debriefed him a couple of times. Uh, and he didn't have a lot to say. He was a fairly junior scientist, but he had been working in one, what is called a closed city, mm. one of these closed scientific cities in the Soviet Union, as it was then. And um, he'd been working on biological warfare stuff um, I said he didn't give us a tremendous amount but what he did give us or what he did give me mm. it's the location of the building uh, he worked in and, and that was quite difficult to get from him not because he, he was reluctant 
jungle because uh, they had no maps. They weren't allowed to have maps yeah, because it was a closed city, and we had to work out exactly, you know, it was a third building on the left, sort of thing, and uh, and how long did it take to walk there? Is this the building, and so on? So we we eventually worked out exactly what building it was. And that's important because if you're looking at it with um, satellite imagery, mm. then you can focus on what is that building doing and what has it done, uh, and you can learn a bit more about it, and you can also um, target it by other means. Mm. So, uh, so this is quite valuable, and uh, the Americans have been trying to work out this for some time, uh, exactly which buildings in this uh, secret scientific city this closed city uh, was doing this work and so when I could come up with the answers mm. uh, or at least give them some clues um, they were very very grateful mm. and I think partly forgave me for contradicting them uh, on the, the yellow rain it was called these yellow drops or called yellow rain contradicting them on the yellow rain thing and so I, I sort of redeemed myself in their eyes uh, a little bit uh, for um helping them out that was the impression that i got it did certainly seem like that um you not long after that you were appointed the intelligence liaison officer that was based out of london um that in itself there was such a contrast i found between what your later work was and that particularly because it required you to navigate some of the most palatial sort of restaurants and and establishments as well as kind of uh making sure to always keep on track or keep focused on on the mission or task as it were as well as remembering some 700 names or 700 people that you're expected to remember for the role. Tell me a little bit about just that, Rob, because ultimately that would be such a contrast to what you would later do. Well, it, it, it was a contrast to what I was going to do later, but it mm. wasn't a contrast to what I'd been doing. I was, uh, at that stage, I was an analyst. I'd mm. been doing investigations as well. I spent a lot of time in Indochina, um, especially along the Mekong River, um, interviewing refugees and so on so but i had it was basically an intelligence job and yep. therefore when i went to uh, london as the liaison officer and the liaison officer um worked with british intelligence to send stuff back to australia that mm. was my sole job to send intelligence from the brits back to australian intelligence and uh, so i mixed with mainly the intelligence staff in the defense area mm. Uh, but also with MI5 and MI6 and uh, and set it back to Australia. And so I was sort of collecting intelligence and um, and I was one of them in a, in a one sense, you know, I, mm. I spoke a language. Uh, I had all the appearances, of course, that they had and I could speak the language and, um, uh, and had some sort of reputation as well by that stage, mm. uh, from, partly from my Yellow Rain days, but also because... Uh, often had conferences in Australia or in London or in Washington and so people knew me so I was just working with people uh, and that was the job and getting information uh, of course was not quite so easy because they they have their own secrets as well but um, I had to sort of occasionally weasel that out of them but um, uh, I didn't do anything illegal um, but it, it, uh, it was a challenge and mm. uh, very, it was one of the best times of uh, my career really but I, I, it wasn't, I, mean, I hadn't thought of anything in the future so it was different to mm. that mm. Uh, but uh, not different to really what I'd been doing before What about when you started with the JIO transforming into the DIO 
uh, that was kind of timed with the Iraq invasion of Kuwait. And uh, I remember there was one particular memorable scene, one of my favourites, was um, you being privy to or party at um, Bob Hawke's outburst with um, kind of really obviously perceiving what he thought had been briefed on and then the reality of what he perceived as more of a threat to Australian um, frigates, I think it was. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because that was kind of a key scene. I thought that kind of underlined or highlighted just how many times you were present at slash contributing to some pretty historical moments. Yes, that was a historical moment. Um, I, by this stage, I had been promoted a few times, and, and also I was acting now in a quite a senior position. Mm. Um, in fact, I was director of all the intelligence in the um, defence intelligence organisation. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, and Bob Hawke came along for a briefing. Now, he'd already visited the Office of National Assessments, which uh, is in the Department of Prime Minister, his own office, you know, his own department, of mm-hmm. course. Uh, and he'd been briefed there about uh, the war that uh, had just broken out, uh, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War after mm-hmm. uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait. And uh, we were one of the first countries that went to support the United States in this. Mm-hmm. The United States after some uh, we said we wouldn't send any troops on the ground, that was a government position, but we would send ships into the Gulf as support, as support vessels. Mm. Uh, and so what he was quite keen about is, you know, are the, are, uh, and you call them my ships, <laughs> strangely, are our ships uh, in danger there? And um, he'd been briefed in the Office of National Assessments that... Uh, no, they're they're quite safe. They're it's to the water south of the Gulf, a long way from Iraq. They're quite safe. Well, uh, we had specialists who briefed on these subjects, and one of the specialists pointed out that, uh, well, uh, a couple of uh, Iraqi mirages, I think they were, or uh, not mirages, uh, um, uh, Russian. Um, I can't remember quite what they were. MiGs, anyway. Mm. Uh, had had crossed uh, down into the Gulf, and uh, uh, but they were shot down before they had gone too far south. Well, Hawke became quite animated at this, mm. and um, because he thought the ships were safe. And now you're saying that um, um, <clears throat> Iraqi MiGs are um, approached the ships, and um, our ships were now in danger. Well. <clears throat> And he got very, um, very irate. Uh, I think, <coughs> just excuse me. Okay. I think he got very irate because mm. uh, he, he now had two different stories and what to believe. And um, I was thinking, well, you know, I'm director of intelligence. I wasn't given this particular briefing, but um, I thought, well, perhaps I should intervene. But fortunately, um, General Baker, who was the head of the organization, <clears throat> got in ahead of me. And Baker's a very calm man and uh, calmed things down with Hawke and, and very impressive, I thought. I, I, I really like General Baker. And uh, he explained that the aircraft uh, came nowhere near our ships. Mm. Uh, they'd been uh, knocked down by, well, by American aircraft or by a Kuwaiti aircraft, as it turned out, one of them, and uh, our ships were never in danger, and that's 
been down for a while anyway. It was interesting, yeah. I just, I mean, there's there's multiple times, and there's kind of a couple more things I want to touch on later as to how many historic events you've sort of been party to. But I, I thought that that was a that was a good one, kind of like highlighting the the level of that you you reached the clearance as well as a contribution to kind of states affairs. Let's go. Let's get into talking a little bit about your time, and I don't fully know how to pronounce it, but I'm going to attempt to. Is it Hana? The M U T H A. Mafana, yes. Mafana. Okay. Mafana State Establishment. Yes, because you you would ultimately come back in uh, several times to Iraq, obviously to conduct these these sort of um, uh, investigations of suspected um, plants or to determine exactly what 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 was being manufactured there or not. Um, but I wanted to know from your overview of, of your experience there, because there was one particular moment that I wanted to talk about. But first of all, just give me an overview, Rod, of what that was like, the, the, that sort of uh, work that you were doing, because I feel that it was invaluable, but also not without peril, particularly with peril. Yes, well, um, because of my um, chemical and biological warfare background, mm. um, I was recruited again a bit to my surprise by the United Nations. In fact, I was nominated by the Department of Foreign Affairs uh, to go on an inspection. Mm. Uh, And I went on the very first inspection uh, to this establishment. Uh, It was the first inspection after the Gulf War uh, to this establishment, which we knew was making or had made um, chemical weapons. And uh, so when I went there, I was sort of the intelligence officer, although the United Nations would never use those words. Mm. Uh, I was sort of the information officer uh, on Mathana because I'd been studying it um, as an analyst uh, in the Defense Intelligence Organization. So I, I was pretty familiar with um, how it all worked uh, and what did what, at least I thought I was. Uh, of course, the reality on the ground is very different. Um, no matter how much, and, and this is a lesson for all intelligence analysts, no matter how confident you feel about what an establishment does or what's going on in a certain place, on the ground, things are different. Uh, we got most things right, but some things were, you know, we got skewed. Anyway, we, I, I, I was on this very first inspection mm. and uh, it was absolutely intriguing. Uh, the one thing, it had been heavily bombed by the Americans um, because, of course, they, it was known to the Americans as well as a chemical warfare establishment. Mm. And in the Gulf War, they didn't want uh, such a facility uh, being used to make chemicals to perhaps to be used against them. So they heavily, you know, they, it was bombed and bombed and bombed. Uh, uh, and I say bombed and bombed and bombed, so almost everything was destroyed, although there were a number of bunkers which even the Americans smart bombs could not penetrate uh, for various reasons. These were built by the East Germans and they knew how to build bunkers. Mm. Uh, They they built bunkers that uh, weren't easily penetrated, but the Americans still got uh, three of them up. And, um, but the problem was with all this bombing, there was was leaking gas everywhere. Mm. Uh, And sometimes very, very dangerous gases like nerve gases, sarin, and of course mustard gas. So it was a very dangerous place to go to on that first occasion. 
And we sort of planned it uh, because I knew which areas might be safe. And we knew wind directions and things like this. And we had detectors with us, you know, chemical detectors. And uh, we had um, full protective suits, of course. And we'd all been trained. And so we, we, we did it quite safely. No one was harmed on that uh, uh, first uh, trip. And we collected quite a lot of information for future teams to go back and destroy the whole establishment, which is what eventually occurred. So, the, I mean, you can be as safe as possible and fastidious about your safety as possible, but there's still certain situations which you can't possibly predict or prevent. Um, can you talk a little bit about, Rod, the time in which you started to, you were investigating one such site that had been bombed to smithereens? And there was a large type of crater that had, that had formed. And I think you were with your, I think his name's Klaus, the German uh, German person that you were with. And you started to fall into the, so it was heavily, obviously, like still very, very heavily explosive. And you started to fall in. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because that was probably one of the most intense and harrowing moments throughout. Yes, and it was uh, it was something that uh, will, I will live with for the rest of my life. In fact, it's something that um, occasionally I do have nightmares over, and I don't have nightmares over many things I did. But this one, yes, um, because uh, Klaus Kessler, uh, as you mentioned, he was a, um, a master sergeant in the German army, and he was a specialist in explosives and, um, and uh, eliminating explosives. And we knew that there was this bunker that had been bombed and all that was left was basically a crater. Mm. Uh, I, I describe it as a volcano because it was a, a crater on top of a little mound of earth, or more than a little mound, And uh, um, but what was inside. So we decided, the team decided, or at least I decided, that um, only I and Klaus would go into this crater or have a look into this crater. Mm -hmm. Because it was too dangerous for the rest of the team because we didn't know what we were going to find we were going to find chemicals or something else uh, but Klaus had already decided uh, that um, there were a lot of unexploded stuff detonators mm. and, um, and other conventional bombs there but we needed to have a look uh, from the top of the crater whether we could see any chemical bombs for example lying at the bottom of this, this volcano mm. so we, we walked and he always he told me walk very very carefully uh, Dr. Barton he said just follow my footsteps I remember these words tread in my steps he said and so I was I was a bit nervous at the time understandable very and Klaus was uh, quite an adventurous sort of person so I knew that uh, and of course this was one stage when the, even the Iraqis wouldn't follow us which was very unusual so we knew it was dangerous so we walked up the side of this volcano, if you wish, and got to the top. And just as I, as I was looking down, he said, now be very careful. But just as I got to the top, it was all very crumbly and the earth started beneath my feet, began to give way. And I started to slide down, still in a vertical position, mm. slide down into the crater. And uh, I thought, if I get to the bottom of this, how on earth do I get out? Because I could see that there were unexploded munitions there, they'd been damaged by uh, the, the, the bombing, and they'd also, as Clarence pointed off, they're cooking off in the sun. Mm. They were extra dangerous, they could go off at any time. And as I was sliding down, I thought, uh, what do I do? Uh, I 
didn't want to panic because I thought that would, you know, that I'll start scrambling because I thought that would even be worse. But he fortunately grabbed my arm. He was on firmer territory than me and managed to pull me back up to the to the top before I got too far. But it was a very anxious moment. <laughs> And it's, it's a stuff of nightmares, as I said. Absolutely. I mean, it was the, for me, it was one of the biggest standouts. I was there. I felt it with you. But it certainly wasn't the only time in which you faced kind of mortal peril. In fact, quite often you did. Um, there was one time within Somalia where um, I feel like there was a tax wanting to charge you or Somaliland wanting to charge you for landing there at the new place in which you had um, several young men point guns at you. I believe that you marched towards them and then pointed the guns away from yourself and told them to go and collect from the UN somewhere else. Can you, that particular story? Yeah, this is, um, this is when I was in Somalia. Mm. Um, and because I had experience in disarmament, the UN had asked me to go to Somalia as, as, as head of disarmament. Mm. Uh, which was a bit surprising, but yep, I decided I would go along. And uh, as I mentioned before, we went up to Somaliland, and when we landed there, uh, Somaliland considered itself to be an independent country, a separate republic from Somalia. Mm. And so when we landed, and when we landed there, I knew it was going to be a bit hairy because the plane we landed in which was an old dc3 the pilots didn't even turn off the engines we just scurried out of the back of the aircraft and they turned the aircraft around even before we were off the runway and flew away so i knew it was a bit sort of hairy there and there was no un troops up there so you know you had no protection mm. and more or less as soon as we got onto the ground and i say we here was myself and uh, a few of my staff uh, um, these young men came up to us, and when I say young, they were basically teenagers, mm. and came up to me and um, and uh, my little group and said, uh, you know, there was a, a landing tax because this was an international airport. So, and they demanded $10 each, and, uh, and they had guns. Mm. Uh, and they weren't pointing the guns at us at that stage, the AK-47s, but they looked, you know, as if they might. Uh, but I was angry uh, because we'd come up there to, we'd gone up there to help mm. the, uh, the Somalis, and um, and I was more angry than anything else. And I told the staff, no, don't, you know, we're not paying. Don't mm. put your money away. And then I turned towards the young men and made a couple of steps towards them, and immediately their guns came up to my chest. And I could see there a lot of the, in their eyes indecision as to what to do. And um, I, I guess uh, my anger overtook my fear, is <laughs> the only way of describing it. And I pushed the barrel of the guns to the side. It just seemed a natural thing to do uh, at the time. And said, no, we are not paying. If you want to collect $10, go to our office uh, here in Hargeisa is the place we was at. Go to our office here in Hargeisa and collect the money from our office. And it's a matter of confidence. Yeah. And they could see in my eyes, uh, or they could see from my the way I dealt with them, and the the confidence I had that uh, they weren't going to get money out of us. They could shoot us, perhaps, but mm. that could cause them problems. Uh, and so there were, and. For me, I thought we were like schoolboys to me, and mm. I was angry. And uh, but very calmly, I said, "No, we are not paying. 
and they just looked a bit dejected and lowered their guns and turned away and wandered back to their shed. Uh, and that was, uh, and part of the reason I didn't pay is I knew that the ten dollars we'd all give them wouldn't go to a good cause. Mm-hmm. It would go to, um, to buying more bullets or something. So um, uh, I was quite keen not to pay them. Fair enough. You mentioned as well that um, your work in Somalia was some of the least uh, intelligence-related, but some of the most rewarding work that you did throughout your career. Tell me a little bit more about that, Rod. How, how so? How, how did you define it as, as rewarding? Well, uh, because uh, it was most rewarding because I was actually doing something really positive. Mm. Um, uh, I was actually making a difference. My, my job was to disarm... Uh, my, my official title was uh, head of uh, director of disarmament and demobilization, mm. and I added the extra R on the end: uh, disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration. Mm. And it's the sort of thing that should occur in any country that has conflicts. You know, we talk. We, for example, if we ever have a settlement in Syria, what happens to all the young men running around with guns? Mm. And unless you actually give them a future they'll still run around with guns and cause problems. Uh, And we have that in a number of other countries as well, Libya, and uh, we'll have that in Yemen, and so on. So uh, it wasn't just a matter of getting rid of the guns, it was a matter of changing attitudes. Mm. That's what I tried to do in Somalia, and I started a project, um, a reintegration project, where in return for um, them learning a skill, uh, they would surrender their weapons, and uh, we, the UN, uh, would help them uh, learn a, a new skill so they could lead a new life. Mm. And some of the young men, uh, in fact, in the place I started this project, uh, we built a pilot farm, uh, and um, the young men would come in. In fact, there was a, almost a fight about who would come in, because a lot of them realized there was no real future in just raiding other people, uh, particularly in Somalia, uh, and uh, uh, but they did realize that there might be a future in farming or in woodwork or in um, other things, Mm. metal work and so on, repairing radios, and um, if they could could get a skill, uh, there might be a, a life for them. So, uh, and I found that very rewarding. And these are all very young men, you have to remember. These mm-hmm. are, these are uh, very often they were just teenagers or, you know, in their 20s or occasionally sort of older, older people would also be in that group. But um, mainly they were young men, uh, not sure what their future was going to be. And here we are offering something to them. And uh, we found it uh, quite a, a good exercise. And the, I might say, uh, the UN hadn't done any work like this before, mm-hmm. but now the UN has projects uh, in, I think, nine different countries doing small projects like I started in Somalia. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. You're right. I mean, like, it is the only way to reverse or to, to possibly alter a societal sort of collapse there, albeit one that's kind of never really... Uh, emerge from being a failed state is to ensure that, yeah, particularly the, the young men have options outside of just being militia. That's right, especially when uh, these militiamen mm. or boys have been doing it for the last five, ten years. Or, you know, or that's all they'd ever learned is how to fire a gun and kill someone. And now there was another option in life. So uh, 
yeah, it, uh, mm. it, it, it was the most rewarding part of my career. There were some intelligent aspects, of course. I, I mm. needed to know a lot about the militias uh, to work with them. And uh, we, I collected intelligence, and my intelligence background was very valuable in that regard. Mm. Um, so, again, uh, yeah, it, it was a perfect job for me, but um, in the end, I got out. <laughs> Absolutely. I would have liked to have remained longer, but I, in the end, I, I did get out, and I, I, I sort of explained that in the book as well. You do. There was also, I mean, uh, speaking of helping people, uh, that was probably the most immediate form of helping someone was helping uh, someone that had been shot, gunshot. There was a, there was a point where you also kind of um, relied on or used some of your Boy Scout training with, with that. You you happened across someone, or someone happened across you that had been shot. Tell me a little bit about that, Rob, before we move on. Yeah, well, uh, this was also at the farm that I built, mm. and we were having an opening, uh, an official opening with the Somali officials, and I got there early. But just um, before the, um, the the officials rolled up, um, and, and this wasn't sort of an unusual sort of type of, of event, but uh, just before um, uh, we did the opening, a um, flatbed, flatbed truck came rushing down the road towards mm. us, and uh, on the back were um, uh, a couple of uh, Somalis that had been shot. One was clearly dead with a, you know, half his head missing. Mm. Uh, and uh, the other one had been shot in the thigh. Uh, and um, uh, and uh, so, and he was bleeding profusely. Mm. And the Somalis didn't seem to know what to do. And they just were yelling, man shot, man shot. Mm. And, uh, but uh, my... Boy Scout training kicked in, you know, I had a first aid batch in the Boy Scouts and I remembered it all, fortunately, and uh, I just put a, a tourniquet on it uh, with a pressure bandage, basically, to stop the bleeding. And, um, uh, and interestingly, he'd been shot through the wallet. <laughs> he had a wallet in his pocket. Wow. And the bullet had gone through the wallet into his leg. And... Uh, so I stuck a bit of money into his wallet and stuck it back into his trousers. And um, so I hope he found that later and I hope it helped him. But uh, they, they took him back to um, uh, the, the town and, um, and uh, the UN gave him some treatment there, I believe. I never knew his fate, but I hope he survived okay. I hope he did as well. I just thought that that was quite a touching moment, as it were, and it showed the sort of uh, personal impact that you had on, obviously, another individual's life. But kind of harkening back to what we've touched on there, and we've, we've discussed what happened with Bob Hawke and how that was, again, you being party to and contributing to these history, historical moments. I wanted to know, because there was also times in which, obviously, you would report directly to the likes of Kofi Annan and Hans Blix, what you perceive to be one of the most historically changing moments of your career that you contributed to. Was it the Document X sort of situation, or what do you now, looking back, perceive as that? Yeah, well, um, I think when I worked for Hans Blix, who was heading the um, the inspection regime in Iraq, mm. the second inspection regime in Iraq, and this was from 2001 to 2003, so it was a couple of years, and I worked for him as a special advisor, and um, I was now um, uh, no longer employed officially as an intelligence officer, I had... Um, had uh, retired or resigned, mm. uh, um, but I was still linked in with the CIA uh, and so on. 
and I'd received uh, from a journalist a document which was a CIA document uh, which um, you referred to as document X which mm. I referred to document X and this was a very important document as it turned out uh, uh, only uh, uh, and this is where intelligence background comes in when mm. I first looked at it I thought well this is not much we already know all of this but hang on, you know, and then I went into it in detail, and it's it's a bit complicated, so I won't go into all those details, mm. but it, it, it showed that um, Iraq was still uh, not telling us everything. Mm. It showed that they were still uh, at some anthrax, which they had not declared, and they had moved uh, the anthrax and other agents around in trucks that we didn't know anything about mm. into a location we had no clue about even though at this stage we'd more or less uncovered the biological weapons program. Mm. The real question for us at that stage is, all right, they moved it around, they hadn't told us everything, uh, they made more anthrax than we, they had told us, but had they destroyed it all? Because they also declared that they destroyed all their anthrax. Mm. Had they? That was a big question. And, um, uh, I explained the situation to Blix. I wrote a paper on this uh, in detail. Uh, it took me a long time to analyze all the bits and pieces from this document X, but uh, it, which we believe was absolutely genuine. It was from a source in Iraq, and no, most sources didn't have a clue, but this one obviously did. Mm -hmm. uh, and it provided, we believed, and we now know, very accurate information. It was all correct. Um, but what we didn't know is what was the fate of that undeclared material. Had it been destroyed, as the Iraqis had said, or not? Mm. And uh, then we were, this was a dilemma for us, uh, because I said, well, we should report it straight away to the Security Council. Mm. This time, you know, um, uh, war was brewing with Iraq. It was, um, this was 2002, and... Um, uh, still, it was a year before the war, but uh, almost a year before the war when we I came to this conclusion, and Blix accepted it all. And uh, but, what do we do with this information? Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, one of the uh, one of the other advisors to Blix uh, said, "Well, we're damned if we do, we're damned if we don't reveal it. Mm -hmm. You know, if we, if we reveal it now, it might make war more likely." If we don't reveal it, we'll be accused of withholding information, important information. So Blick said, well, probably it's not quite the right time, we'll wait. But of course, there was never a better time. And in fact, the thing has just got worse and worse. Mm. But um, my time with Blix in general, not just Document X, was an important time, I think. And I wrote reports for the Security Council. Um, which Blix read out. Uh, I mean, I did the technical stuff and he did more of the political stuff and then we used to swap, uh, you know, uh, drafts and, and then comment on each other's draft. Mm. And then the two would get married together, the two reports would get married together and um, he'd brief the Security Council. But uh, I think, uh, you know, my influence on, you know, briefing the Security Council was, I think, you know, well, it's part of the highlights of my career, I guess. Very much. I mean, like, it certainly seems so. And I mean, it was instrumental in, in later events. But I wanted to know, and 
what if the, the the one in which you were the most involved with emotionally potentially and kind of what's prompted you to then uh speak with four corners in that in that regard was the prisoner abuse in which you'd seen at camp cropper and i wondered because that was that seemed to be for for me it felt like a giant turning point in your priorities and what you perceived as needing to be done what the right thing was to do so I was wondering if you could give us a brief overview of what that was exactly and your involvement in it and then the, what that sort of uh, prompted you to do. Well, uh, Camp Cropper was a, a CIA prison for what they called high-value detainees, HVDs. Americans mm. seem to abbreviate everything. But the high-value detainees were in this prison camp mm. called Camp Cropper. And this was, of course, um, after the ni- uh, 2003 uh, Iraq war, mm. uh, where a whole pile of um, senior Iraqi officials, including Saddam Hussein, eventually finished up. And um, uh, we had access to this prison. Of course, I had access to this prison. I, I, I was a senior person at that stage. I was the senior advisor uh, to the um, person uh, in charge of the CIA investigating where are the missing weapons. I was a um, special advisor, senior advisor then. And um, I'd been to Camp Cropper and uh, I'd actually interviewed uh, an individual and uh, although that wasn't really my job, but mm. I had because I'd, I'd been asked by the CIA to do that. Uh, but I'd, given, I'd been given a private tour by the commandant of the prison. I'd seen what had happened. But um, also we used to get these briefings uh, at um, CIA headquarters in Baghdad about prisoners mm. and who was in Camp Cropper and uh, you know for anyone who wanted to go out to interview them and that was the idea of the briefings they used to have I, I used to call it prisoner of the day I know that sounds a bit strange but they used to brief anyway on the prisoners uh, and um, uh, and when they were briefing on the prisoners they used to put up photographs of this prisoner or that prisoner and I noticed uh, that some of the prisoners seemed to have um, marks on their face, you know, that obviously mean bashed. Mm. And um, in fact, it was, uh, I was puzzled, as a few other people who were being puzzled, uh, watching this, about, you know, why did, you know, you could understand perhaps one or two might have bruises, but almost all of them mm. were prisoners that, and these are photographs of the prisoners as they were inducted into the camp. Mm-hmm. So what had happened to them? And in fact, uh, General Dayton, who was the general in charge of the security division looking after the CIA, because these were tough times after the 2003 war. So there was a big security division and General Dayton was in charge of this um, security division. He actually asked the question, he was at the briefing and said, well, what's happened to these, this person? And then again, what's happened to that person? Mm. And the, the answer that always came back, oh, he resisted arrest, sir. So, uh, well, you can imagine that maybe one or two might resist arrest, but these, by and large, these were senior people, you know, sometimes in their 60s, you know, they're mm. not going to fight, you know, a couple of burly Marines or, you know, a dozen burly Marines. And um, to the point where they, you know, they get bashed around. So mm. there was something going on. And um, sure enough, there was something going on. Uh, these prisoners were being bashed. And as 
time went on, I began to learn a little bit more about what uh, actually what actually happens before they actually get inducted into the prison. And basically, they go into a, an area called purgatory. And that is, the theory is that um, that uh, once someone is arrested, they are the most at the most vulnerable time. They're mm. the most frightened. They don't know what's going to happen. So they have a bag put over their head and they get bashed. Mm. And this might go on for several days. And they just and they're told they're going to die unless they tell everything. And they get bashed a day and night, and uh, and they never see who's holding them. They never know where they are. They're deprived of um, food and sometimes water. And so they, they they're in dire circumstances. Mm. And under those circumstances, the theory is they will say anything. Mm. And that is obviously prisoner abuse. And that's why, of course, they had um, marks on their faces. When I returned to Australia, I reported this, and this was before we knew anything about the prisons, the prisoners at Abu Ghraib, which mm. is a different prison. Uh, and of course, uh, eventually we saw all of those uh, events unfold on TV. We saw bits of videos of, and photographs and so on of prisoners mm. uh, under duress. And there was a great outcry about that, but no one wanted to hear what I'd been saying about the CIA, or it was actually the special forces that were handing out these bashings, and I discovered exactly where this was occurring and so on. No one wanted to listen to me about this. Mm. It was ignored, and uh, I said we shouldn't have anything to do with these prisoners anymore. You know, we shouldn't you know go along. Uh, we should object to the Americans. We should try and stop this um, behaviour. And by that time, we knew about Abu Ghraib. Mm. So, uh, but there was no, no real interest in the department. It was all, well, you know, we've got to support the Americans, and no one wanted to know. So, uh, and that was a disgraceful episode. And I, I couldn't live with that. Mm. Um, that's why eventually I resigned my, I had a contract with the CIA, and that's why I quit. Uh, again, much of the distress of the Australian authorities, you don't quit from a position like this. Mm. You've let down. You've let us down. That was the attitude in Canberra, and uh, I said, "Well, I can't work under these circumstances." Mm. And then that ultimately is what prompted you to. I believe you were first uh, approached by Liz Jackson about then possibly appearing on Four Corners. Is that sort of what made up your your mind from there? Yes, um, I I, uh, I didn't give up. Uh, I, I quit the uh, I quit the job with the CIA. Mm. Uh, and um, in fact, the CIA actually eventually asked me to go back, which I, I did. But that's another story. But um, uh, but I, I still pursued this because I felt so strongly mm. that we should do something. And uh, I was contacting senior officials uh, in the government uh, or in the in foreign affairs and in the defence. But again, no one wanted to, to know me, uh, to do anything about it. So um, virtually, uh, whereas the Americans themselves, they send out an investigator, mm. uh, someone from the um, NCIS, the Naval uh, Criminal Investigation Service, I think it's called. Mm. And uh, th th they, uh, they investigated this, but of course they couldn't get through the CIA um, uh, barrier and they couldn't. Yeah, they they couldn't find out the answers themselves. Everything, all the documentation had been destroyed. They said, mm. and 
and I could just clearly see the frustration in, from the investigators. Um, <clears throat> so no one really wanted to know about it. So I thought, well, the only way that I can do anything perhaps is, is be public, go public. But mm. I wasn't, you know, it didn't come naturally to me. I was an intelligence officer still, even though I was had resigned from my positions. No, of course. But it was sort of uh, embedded into you. You don't speak out publicly ever. Uh, but then Liz Jackson from Four Corners contacted me, and she'd been contacting me before, but I'd sort of said, no, no, I'm not going to do anything. But now I thought, no, here's an opportunity. I really do have to speak out publicly, and perhaps only then will something happen. And uh, so um, the Four Corners team came to my house, and um, in fact, much to my surprise, I thought I'd just be part of a wider program, but she just, Liz said, no, just no, you. you're... You're the program. So I did a, a full Four Corners program with uh, uh, Liz and, um, and exposed, exposed this, amongst other things, exposed this uh, prisoner abuse. And that in turn led to a Senate inquiry. Mm. So it did have, I thought, some effect. It, it, yeah, I mean, from, from what you outlined, it definitely did. What about your life and your ongoing life from from that period onwards there, Rod? Has that had a lasting impact, be it negative or, or positive or not really? Well, um, uh, the Senate inquiry, because I, the Senate inquiry, you think, would have solved some of these issues or looked into them. But as it turned out, I was the only witness at the Senate inquiry, which really infuriated me. There mm. were other people who had been to those prisons they should have testified. I testified, provided information to departmental officials. They should have appeared at the Senate inquiry. For the, to be the only person at a Senate inquiry must be unique. Mm. Uh, and that's frustrated me as well. And it still affects me today. I can't believe that uh, that is. But, what, but I, could, I, I felt I'd reached the end of the line on this. Um, so, uh, but um, uh, the uh, attitude of the um, intelligence org organisations was I was now a, really an outcast. I'd, um, not only had I quit, but I'd spoken out publicly, and that just doesn't go down well. Mm. Uh, and one of the things that was uh, prime above everything else was our relationship with the Americans, and they felt I had damaged that relationship. Um, but the Americans, in the end, uh, didn't see it quite that way. Uh, when attitudes changed over the prisoners and also over the uh, telling the truth about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, I was invited back to Baghdad and I went back with the CIA uh, and I helped write the, um, the final report about weapons of mass destruction and it was a good, honest report basically saying there weren't any and basically coming to the conclusion we went over to war quite illegally and uh, incorrectly that was the other major point about that and uh, I even went to um, uh, the congressional hearings mm. uh, to um, help present the, um, the report and being an Australian this was quite an honour Absolutely. because it was always Americans but um, you know uh, so that I guess that was another sort of highlight in my career that um, uh, 
uh, at least the Americans, the CIA, recognized that um, I was of value and useful. And, um, and uh, in the end, the truth, the truth did win out. The truth did win out. And I think that, uh, yeah, that's a good way to summarize your actions because it seems that you have prompted sort of a major and lasting change within both our nations as well as them respectively. So for that, I commend you and thank you. Um, Rod, thank you so much for talking to me today and sharing your incredible life story and career within this book. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. It was a cracking read and I've really very much enjoyed talking to you today. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. When I wrote the book, I wrote it for everyone, if you know what I mean. Mm. I wrote it in this sort of very conversational style, deliberately. So, um, it, 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 it's not, it doesn't get too heavy, but no. it does pass on the messages, I hope. No, I do agree with you. It, it is, it is um, very accessible because particularly with me, who, has, who is a complete layman when it comes to, to this sort of world, um, I found it to be very accessible. So no, it was uh, easy to read and it was a joy to read. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. Thank you again. So everyone, there you have it. That was Rod Barton uh, talking to me about his incredible life and career working within Australian intelligence in concert with the likes of other huge top branch intelligence agencies like the CIA and MI5 uh, on a myriad of different sort of uh, historically altering or historically defining sort of endeavors, including obviously um, looking for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and then his uh, whistleblowing of what he saw within uh, Camp Cobber. So huge round of applause to Rod Barnett for talking to me today and sharing his incredible uh, life story there, particularly because it's so naturally clandestine with um, the kind of nature of intelligence needing to be redacted or that sort of thing, I guess. But um, yeah, huge thanks to Rod. Uh, it was a pleasure reading, uh, talking to him and reading The Life of Spy and Education and Truth, Lies and Power. In the bio slash description slash whatever you want to call it for this particular episode, wherever you're listening to this on Spotify or SoundCloud, I will be putting up the link to Black Ink Books. Black Ink Books are the good folks that published uh, Rod's book. I'm going to be putting up their... Uh, link there to their website so that you can get on there get your hands on a copy of Rod's book and also check out all the other really cool books that Black Ink Books are publishing so again let's give a big round digital round of applause followed by my example a bit more spirited to Rod Barton for talking to me about the life of a spy and education and truth lies and power thank you to you give yourself a big round of applause albeit a pat on the back not sure if you can hear my fabric touching my flesh there, but big pat on the back for listening to this episode and all other episodes in which you listen to. If you haven't already, please follow on Spotify at least. Go back and listen to all the other old episodes that are there. A lot more coming your way, uh, as always. Got a lot more guests coming up well into August time. Uh, really excited about that and you guys listening to that. So again, can't thank you enough for... All the people that are listening, all the numbers of listeners that I'm seeing kind of like growing there and all the countries that are uh, listening to it. And I, 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 I'm, you know, I promote on Instagram and stuff, but uh, some, I don't know how it's coming through to you, but I'm glad it is. I'm all about it. I'm here for it. Please continue listening and, and thanks heaps. And I hope you all have a wonderful afternoon.